Hello and welcome to History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Dr. Jacob Wright. Dr. Wright has recently published Why the Bible Began, an Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins with Cambridge University Press, uh, which has been selected to be in the list of the best books in 2023 from The New Yorker. Um, and actually, the day before I talked with Dr. Wright, uh, the book was also going to be placed in the uh, Jimmy Carter Presidential Library in Atlanta, Georgia. So we had a big event there. Um, this book is probably the the widest, uh, the book which has the widest audience and uh, widest readership of any authors I've covered so far on the podcast. So it was great to get to talk to Dr. Wright. Um, the thesis is very interesting. Uh, he tries to argue about the role of the Bible in shaping a people and shaping a nation, um, ultimately the, the Jewish people. And so it's, uh, it's very interesting to be able to talk to someone who who, um, uh, of a Jewish background, but who teaches at a Protestant university um, and has a, a very good handle on what uh, sort of the history behind the shaping of this book. Um, and so it was a pleasure to talk with him. He also, we mentioned briefly some of the stuff that's happening uh, in Israel and Palestine. Um, and so this is also a timely book as it, as it considers what does it mean to be the people of God um, in the 21st century. So uh, absolute pleasure to talk with Dr. Wright. Um, we are, as a podcast, beginning to do more with our Patreon. So we're going to be releasing some podcasts just for the Patreon. So you'll want to subscribe to that Patreon if you can. Um, and if you just uh, enter in the lowest level, just maybe a dollar or two a month, it could really help us uh, defray the costs of keeping this podcast online. Um, and so we just really appreciate if you do that. Patreon.com slash A-H-O-C-T. Um, we have some other conversations that will be coming up after this. I'll be talking with Ty Monroe about Augustine's Confessions, um, and I have some stuff lined up. Uh, Drew Martin on um, the political background of the forming of the Westminster Confession. Um, so lots of stuff coming up, um, and just really appreciative to have of having Dr. Wright on uh, to talk about this book. Um, and he also has courses on Coursera he wanted me to mention as well that you might be interested in listening to if you enjoyed uh, this um, this book all, or this conversation. Also, I should say that this book is coming out with Cambridge University Press, and normally their books are more expensive, but this one is a lot, uh, is a lot more uh, uh, reasonably priced um, for the average person to be able to purchase, so um, I do recommend it. There's a lot, it's a book that's much bigger than what we could cover in our conversation, so there's a lot of information. Um, and a lot of great learning and research uh, within it. All right, but without any further ado, um, here's my conversation with Jacob Wright. All right, well, um, let's get started. Um, I am very grateful to have uh, Dr. Jacob L. Wright, uh, professor, full professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Um, and we are here to talk about uh, this tome, uh, <laughs> a big book uh, on why the Bible began, uh, an alternative history of scripture and its origins. And I've been working through it a little bit over the last week or so. Um, and I think you comment on almost every book of the of the Old Testament, uh, as Christians would call it, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just so much here, history, archaeology, uh, but ultimately a question mm -hmm. of why, right? Ultimately yeah. uh, trying to ask different questions of all of this stuff. Okay, so we have texts, we have archaeology, we have theology, but but you want to dig into 
uh, a different way of analyzing that. So, uh, yeah. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for coming on. It's good to be here. Um, yes, that why question is central to it because we have so many books that are occupied with the, uh, with the question of when. Mm -hmm. um, is this a goes back to Moses? Is this text go back to, um, to David and so forth? And where was it written? And uh, what does it teach? And uh, who were the authors and so forth? Who wrote the Bible is one of the biggest books on the Bible uh, ever written. And it was Richard Elliott Friedman presenting this documentary hypothesis. Now, um, what I wanted to do was step back and look at, well, why? It comes mm -hmm. out of a course um, on Coursera, an open course online. And um, the title of that course was The Bible's Prehistory Purpose and Political Future. So kind of moving in direction of, looking at the Bible as um, as something not only for religious communities, Jews and Christians, but also for a real model of community that has relevance beyond religious communities, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and that why question then is, gets us to take a step back and uh, look at the coherence of the whole canon. I was enjoying your conversation with Dr. Laird um, mm -hmm. in the previous episode, and uh, that coherence of what all these texts are about. Mm -hmm. um, that was the really prompting question I had. And, um, and my answer to that, just to give a spoiler, is peoplehood. It is a new concept of what it means to be a people. And what the whole, from Genesis to Esther, the whole Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures are about in my uh, evaluation is an attempt to answer a question that had never been asked before. And it is, what does it mean to be a people? Mm -hmm. We know what a kingdom is. We know what families are. We know what empires and cities are, but a people, the people of Israel, the Israelites in Hebrew, the Am Israel, that concept of bringing together divided communities and saying, we actually are a people. What is a people? And those questions are answered in various ways from Genesis with the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs to the liberation from Exodus and Egypt in the book of Exodus onto, you know, things like the Torah, the, the scripture, the text at the center of this community. That's these laws are going to constitute our peoplehood. Our covenant with our God is going to constitute what it means to be a people. And they're not aware of their, what they're doing, that they're asking what it means to be a people. But, but that is clearly the question that we would say is really driving it. Yeah. Well, that's that's very helpful. And I just uh, as you were talking, it also reminded me um, I'm teaching uh, Elie Wiesel's night uh, for a oh, theology, wow. a theology oh, wow. class right now. But I told the students that one of the most powerful elements of that book is at the very beginning. And Moshe, the Beatle says, uh, I pray that God will give you the strength to ask the real questions. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it just it sort of seems like that's part of what you are doing in thinking about this book is trying to ask, what are the questions that we really want to know about this book um, and trying mm -hmm. to get a, a kind of at the heart of the matter? And and even and that is kind of scary for uh, uh, Wiesel at the at, in as he's thinking through that whole work. So we don't have to go into the whole setting of that book, but I was just thinking about the yeah. the, impo the importance of the question, right? The deep question and asking the right question is, um, as a teacher, for example, is one of the most difficult things. How do you ask the right question to get the whole class from all my colleagues in the class? 
thinking about an issue in a really deep way. And um, so that where is the question formulated? Mm-hmm. It would be nice if there was a preamble um, <laughs> in Genesis 1.1. Uh, this corpus of literature addresses the question of what it means to people. Yeah. Genesis 1.1. <laughs> in the beginning, God. and it, But that really helps us to kind of, I think, that lens to see the transition from Genesis 1 through 11, which is this primordial history, so-called, yeah. about how the deity um, comes to settle on a project of, through Abraham and Sarah, this aged uh, couple without a child, how this God decides to say, you know, the Tower of Babel was awful. I almost wiped out the whole creation with the flood. And now there's a new way we're going to go forward. And it's going to be through the making of a family that blossoms into a people. And in a, and the, the Hebrew Bible conceptualizes the world populated after the Tower of Babel by different nations. And of course, these peoples didn't understand themselves as nations, but that's the kind of lens that the Hebrew Bible introduces to its historical understanding of the world. And it's that lens that has been so powerful for us throughout, uh, especially the Western world in the formation of what it means to be a nation, where a lot of thinkers in early modernity were looking to the Hebrew Bible for this, but also in the colonized world where a lot of peoples uh, use the translations, the very first kinds of uh, often uh, inscripturations or textualizations of their spoken languages. And they look to the Bible as African-Americans, for example, in America, as a model for being a people, even when we don't have a state, even when we don't have sovereignty, that we can still be a people. And it's that people of God, which is the first iteration of that. And it becomes uh, secularized in various ways, but it's it's important to look back at its origins, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and you brought up the, you know, the uh, the African American tradition. And one of the other texts I teach is called a Thanksgiving sermon uh, by Absalom Jones, one of the first ordained black men in the United States, and at the beginning of the 19th century. And and he uses the Exodus account in exact in exactly the way that you were just describing. Like mm-hmm. so, he reads through Exodus three and sees how you know the people are suffering, or the well, the beginning mm-hmm. of Exodus and how the yeah. people are suffering. Um, and then he he talks about in Exodus three where God comes down and God sees and God hears and he uses that uh, as a as a rhetorical refrain throughout the speech uh, as he weaves in the story of the African people in the North Atlantic slave trade yeah. um, and it and it and I like you know it fe- fe- feels very fitting to me to be having this conversation with you because yeah. I again I just was um, using that uh, within my yeah. class in the last month or so. So that's an interesting text and 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 he rightly picks up on a unique and distinctive, at least, aspect of the Hebrew Bible, and that is this relationship between the deity and the deity's people, mm-hmm. and that the deity has compassion and wants to rescue this people and make it his own, and he enters in a covenant with it and says, you, ha- you need to abide by my precepts because, remember, I brought you out of the house of bondage, and that kind of story that goes on throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, I teach a course where we, it's called Text of Terror, um, which looks at some of the most difficult texts in the Hebrew Bible. At Candler, I teach that and have taught it almost every year since I started there 17 years ago. And um, 
in the book of Hosea, that relationship is really unpacked in a very dramatic way where Yahweh um, looks back on the way he treats Israel and says, you know, this devastation that I wreaked upon it was too much. I'm going to bring her back. I'm going to speak to her. I'm going to do a new way. She won't call me my Baal, which is another word for husband, but also play on the word mm-hmm. uh, the, the God Baal. But she's going to call me my man, Ishi, my man. And that, that this, this beautiful relationship, but is also a very, a very troubled one, right? It's, and that unpacking of a troubled relationship coming from both sides where the deity says, mm, I'm not doing that anymore. Just like during the flood, I'm not going to do that anymore. And that ability for the deity to, to grow, I think has immense theological implications. I teach the intro course at Candler, and that's going to be the most difficult concept for my students to grasp is that, the, that this deity has the ability to grow and they come at it from the Aristotelian kind of concept of perfection and yeah. that there is no growth. And I have to get them to think, is perfection completion or is perfection the ability to grow? Right, we think of a perfect partner as one who, boy, he grows, he he develops, he learns. We say that's perfect, but for some reason, and on this very robust relationship between the deity and the people of Israel, um, we we have trouble with that growth. But we lose, we lose uh, when we um, neglect that aspect. We lose the power of this narrative. And mm. so, coming back, why is that so distinctive? Well, deities were linked to their peoples in the ancient Near East from time immemorial. When did Chamosh become our God? The Moabites ask. Well, he's always been our God. The Bible breaks that primordial union between Mm. deity and people. And it says, no, the deity saw us in our affliction and rescued us. And he made a covenant with us at a specific time. And then we said, amen, yes, we agree, we'll do this. We became his people at a fixed point in time. And we also can lose the kingdom that we establish at a fixed point. All these things are volitional. All of them have a point in time in which they begin because they want to reflect on what is the basis of our relationship. It's not some primordial mystical union between deity and the deity's land and the deities, the, the people who inhabit, who inhabit that land. No, they became a partner, a covenantal mm-hmm. partnership emerged before they even entered the land. And we can still be a people. It's not dependent. It's, it's breaking down that kind of status quo. Mm. in which everything kind of works together and the deities is part of the system and the deities role is to keep everything in motion the rain's coming and so forth and you do things to make sure that the deity is not offended but (laughs) what we have in the hebrew bible is what does offense the deity yes there are ritual infractions that do it but much more are how are you treating the orphan the widow and the stranger that's the basis that I want to have with you on this volitional covenantal basis f- for going forward. And it's the basis by which we began. And no, we were not always together at the beginning. I chose you, not because of anything inherently better in you, to the contrary, but you're mine. 
Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's very powerful. Um, and it, it reminds me of uh, something you say at the beginning of the book. You make a distinction between, uh, you know, talking about this idea of creating a people. You use you think about these phrases, ethnic and national. Um, and so uh, you, you say uh, scholars prefer to use the term ethnic rather than national when describing the corporate identity of the people of Israel on display in the texts. And then just a little bit down from there, uh, you explain this difference, but you, you use this line. And nations in contrast in contrast are abstract and volitional um and and i i want i i underlined that because i was i well first maybe just to talk me through a little bit why ethnic is yeah. preferred and then and then I why you go with national I appreciate the opportunity to yeah. to answer that question that's an important one um so people have trouble with the word nation applying it to pre-modernity. And with, in political theory, there's a huge discussion between various camps, like the primordials will say the nation has always been around. And some of the leading thinkers, in fact, uh, make the case that maybe the Hebrew Bible is a part of that. Well, we see, at least in antiquity, some national developments, and the modernity is not um, all that distinctive. And it's because modern but scholars of modernity don't know enough ancient history to see that maybe not in ancient greece we don't have a nation that's true it has a different kind of polis kind of uh uh orientation and maybe we don't see it um in the empires but we do see national identities forming in very similar ways to our own um, scholars in biblical studies pick up on that um, unease with the term nation and they find ethnic to be really useful um, and ethnic doesn't have the political connotations and it also can be linked to other kinds of ethnic questions that we have in our own time. The problem with the word ethnic is that a nation consists of multiple ethnicities. Mm. The Jewish people today have people in amongst in our fold, who the whole rainbow of our human population is a part of it. And many of them are, of course, robust communities with their own traditions, with their own dialects, with their own diets, and all kinds of things. That's an ethnicity. However, these ethnicities affirm their unity at a higher level, that we, our communities, belong together as a people. And so it is also in the Hebrew Bible. You have various communities in the north and the south, across the Jordan, the Gilead, and so forth. They all have different ways. They have their own marriage groups. They have their own um, uh, agricultural cycles and traditions. But the Bible is trying to say, we go back to one family. And this family emerged into a diverse nation. And it did that. It became a nation when it chose to enter a covenant mm. with their deity, but it also placed a text, a written document as the basis for their relationships with each other. And this is a nation in this, uh, more than that, and my book, uh, it goes back to an article in Proof Text that was republished in various forms and translated and so forth. And it's an article that makes the case that the biblical authors introduced for the first time in human history the division, the distinction between state and nation. Mm. A state is a country, a government, has institutions of 
above all the military and taxation and so forth, and it can be destroyed. You can destroy a capital. You can destroy walls. You can destroy all the institutions of statehood. What is very difficult to, to destroy is peoplehood or a nation. Nations can go into exile and diaspora, and they can and to wipe a nation out requires wiping the people out themselves. As long as there is this will to be a people, and um, so yes, I think the best term for this, and I've written on it. Um, I don't enter into the theory of it mm-hmm. uh, in this book, but I affirm it and I stand behind it and. I think it's an important point. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's very helpful. And it just I think at another point uh, within this and I, I'm going to miss it. But you you talk about like uh, the the people from Judah becoming a Jew, um, I think, is the phrase that you use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, it reminds me of just the the very difficulty of offering. You know, we we like to ca- you spoke of Aristotle. We like to categorize. We like to have genus and species. And it seems like uh, Jewish people, Israelites, Hebrews, all of these names that we have for this people, this nation, have always been difficult. Uh, we've always had difficulty categorizing. Uh, you know, are they are they an ethnicity like other ethnicities? Well, no. Are they a religion like all other religions? Well, not exactly either. Um, and and it's, some, it's something of the power of uh, the people that they just seem to sort of uh, bleed into all the different categories, but somehow are still their own thing. Yeah, that's a really important observation that how difficult it is for um, others to understand what Jews are, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's an assumption, well, this guy's not religious. He's not really Jewish. Well, and according to st- the strictest rabbinic law, he is fully a Jew, and there's not any deviation. There's no, like, gradation. You're, like, mm-hmm. 90% Jewish. So how can one be Jewish without being religious, well, then it goes into the questions of what one called ethnicity, but that is, again, a little bit problematic because there are multiple ethnicities, and then this whole thing of peoplehood is, I think, the answer to that. And so, to your point of how Judeans become Jews, Judeans are, the the, the, the name for the territory is Judah, Yehuda, or Yehud in uh, Aramaic. And the people who lived there were, I don't know if they really would call themselves Judeans. They probably would call themselves according to their own clan and city and say, yes, we have to pay taxes to the Jews. And that was both in the kingdom and in the province later that it was established after the destruction of 586 by the Babylonians. The Persians established this province. And once again, it's a piece of land with inhabitants. So how does a Judean become a Jew? How, how are Judeans become, how are people in the book of X uh, uh, of how are people in the book of Esther um, called Jews when they live in, throughout the empire? Mm-hmm. They're actually Jews in the sense that they have something that is not land oriented, but something other. Well, what is it? And Ernest Renan, and then picked up by Homi Baba, was one of the first to ask, like, what is a nation? And he answered it in the ways that I am answering it. He was a problematic figure in many ways. But I think with that very pivotal essay and lecture that he delivered, what does it mean to be a nation? It has to, it has to be some kind of will, some kind mm-hmm. of decision, some kind of volition, some kind of voluntaristic spirit, some kind of narrative, some kind of memories of past griefs, he says, that hold us together. It's really 
what I call a state of mind. Mm. It's not a state of military and all of the institutions of governance. It's really a state of mind. And what the biblical uh, project does is it shapes that state of mind through text, right? The text is the center. It replaces the palace as the people go into exile. They can take their text with them, what Heinrich Heine called a portable homeland, that the Jews, mm. wherever they are, they have their homeland, they have their memories, and they live in a homeland that is in the bosoms of their, that the text that they carry in their bosom. And, yeah. um, and so we struggle today in the U.S. and elsewhere with being a people. We're so divided. It's perhaps the most divided we've been since the Civil War. And this is a very, very serious issue. I don't think people are taking that seriously enough. We have to find a way. We think we can still afford to fight each other. We cannot. And the biblical authors understood that. And we're not, to what extent can, can we be an American people, a British people, a Korean people, right? When we're all divided, when we don't have a, a sense of love for neighbor, a shared past, we have to work on trying to combine our past in the way the biblical texts do. They, they have multiple, here's the story of the patriarchs and the matrix in Genesis, and here's our story of our liberation. It's not one or the other. These are, we're going to blend these stories and tell about a past that embraces. You know, this comes to the fore in, in American society at Thanksgiving time when uh, mm -hmm. people who came just recently to the country are supposed to wear pilgrim outfits and act like that's where their ancestors came from, <laughs> right? But that goes to the heart of how does one embrace a narrative that's not one's own? How does that narrative become a, how do you adapt that narrative so that others can make it their own? But also how can you add other narratives to it to create a more uh, larger, expansive narrative in keeping with the biblical genius of peoplehood. And I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm pretty much a fan of it. Um, I know there are a lot of problems with this project. I think people get wrapped up in, in the kind of moral problems of entering the culture wars around these, and we're missing, all of us, both on the right, the left, in the middle, we're missing the real extraordinary uh, aspect of the Bible, and that is, it is making a text, making questions, and creating some kind of love for neighbor as, a, as an innovative move in political thought, that we can be a people, even when we're dispersed. And to lay that out in such dramatic ways, in various ways, is, I don't think it's really ever been repeated yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, and it reminds me, like, sort of the unsung hero of this book are the unnamed scribes, um, whoever these people are that are collecting or that are writing, collecting, editing the thing that becomes the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, uh, you know, whatever that is, the, these these people. And, uh, you know, one of the things uh, there are a lot of remarkable things that you note about the scribes. Um, but one of them I was just looking through uh, this morning that with uh um, sort of what they are willing to um, contain all in one text, what they're willing to not erase, uh, mm -hmm. but preserve. And there, you talk about the Miriam as a kind of rival prophet uh, to Moses in, uh, mm -hmm. or, no, did I say that yeah. wrong? 
yeah, yeah, That's Moses, yeah, um, and um, and and sort of the the willingness of the the writers to say, well, we're not just going to erase that. We're not just mm-hmm. going to erase the difficult out of the camp to yeah. use the biblical text, yeah. right? And um, Israel won't move through the wilderness toward their promised land unless she's brought back in, yeah. and um, that is a is a larger kind of symbol of what I think is um, the uh, the willingness and the drive to find ways to bring things together now of course not everything is included it's mm. not inclusivity at all costs there are yep. decisions made this is not ours like the book of maccabees mm. why isn't the book of maccabees in the bible mm. and i make yeah. a case the book of maccabees is not there because it extols martyrdom mm. but Jewish maccabees says um come on let's advance into the army if we die we will die a blessed death Right. And the rabbis didn't like that at all. The whole biblical project is not about that either. Mm. Jeremiah, when the Babylonians are surrounding the city of Jerusalem, he's pleading with the population in the palace to bend our necks to the yoke of Babylon and live. Living is more important than liberation. Life the, the the sanctity of life trumps every other law within rabbinic Judaism, even like breaking the sh- the Sabbath, mm-hmm. life, and and the the central refrain throughout much of Genesis is be fruitful and multiply, mm-hmm. and that's going to sustain this people rather than duking it out with others on a battlefield because that's going to really put us in jeopardy. And so, yes, statehood has a role. Maybe the Maccabees, if it worked out better, would, you know, one day in the future, we'll get that back, that messianic kingdom, the, the thing that we had with David and that we lost during the Babylonian destruction where the Davidic dynasty went into exile. But in the meantime, we live in the age of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm. We live in a time where the empire rules us. We're in our land. So there's an already not yet. The already mm. is we have our land. We have our text now. This is the first time we see the community longing to hear a text read to them and then studying with it, studying the text, studying with Ezra around the text, and then becoming readers themselves. And that happens because the plan B is now fully taking form. That plan B that was formulated in the wilderness under Moses now can uh, blossom. And, mm. and have its impact because now we're in the wilderness again in a certain sense. And um, we cannot rely on our King David to demarcate our borders. What's going to demarcate our borders? It's going to be a larger spiritual project. It's going to be through text, through our community, through our decisions to say, this is who we are. And that same spirit seems to pervade Judaism to this day, this uh, emphasis on studying the texts, even though uh, not having the messianic uh, uh, king yeah. in the same respect. Um, and now, fa- in the, I'll tell you a, a joke um, that may be offensive to some Christians <laughs> is that uh, the question is like, when will the Messiah come? And mm-hmm. the answer is hopefully not in our own days. <laughs> Why, did, why is that said? Why is that a joke? The, the Messiah coming means the life that we have right now with our texts and our families and everything, this plan B is actually 
really, really good. Mm. And the Messianic age, the statehood, that the state of Israel, for example, is going to bring about some suffering for us all. And mm. that's what is happening right now. And um, it, did, would the rabbis have supported the state of Israel? I believe so. Mm. But they also want to point out there has to be a day after. Mm. We cannot forget what has sustained us to this very this time that we had a land you know 3500 years ago and that we we have a, a land now today that's a gift but we cannot see that as the see not non or whatever that's the term is uh that is the <laughs> i can't remember the latin but do you get the point it's yeah. not the essential aspect of our identity what's essential is uh, the text, the Torah, our God, and our families, and all of that. And we have to f- re- keep our eye on that ball because every project of statehood brings suffering. Like David's mm. project brought suffering. It, it brought sovereignty, security, but also at a price. And the biblical authors are very um, uh, honest about that. And the book and the Maccabees brought a lot of suffering, and 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 states commit crimes at some level too because to establish a territory and borders and to protect yourself uh blood is shed and mm-hmm. um and we're seeing that unfold still and um and that plan b is the the plan i'm talking about even in in the midst of where that plan a of statehood is facing some of its biggest challenges since its uh since its formation in 1948 yeah right yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's hard to know uh, what to say. I spent uh, I spent a, about a couple months in the Middle East uh, during my master's program and was able to go into the West Bank and into Egypt oh, and wow. then also in uh, spent a lot of time in southern Israel and northern Israel and seeing just all the different things and I you know I I just feel over you know overwhelmed uh, when when I read the news because I've known you know. Uh, lovely Palestinian people and equally lovely Jewish settlers, you know, and as they're often called. And, you know, it's just, it's like, I, I really, like, I don't know where to place uh, uh, my well, emotion. I'm not I'm just... but, yeah. I don't know. The settlers, I have a hard time with, a very hard time. And they are, in my mind, really um, undermining the whole future of the state. Um, mm. They think they're not, uh, but they're delusioned. And, um, in my mind, that's my opinion. And I, um, so, but yes, there are, what happened with the massacre just by the way, was that most of the ones who were massacred were, were against a lot of BB's, uh, politics and against the settler mentality. These were yeah. settlements that have go way back and they mm-hmm. are, were the most, um, liberal places. And these families were slaughtered and it wasn't during combat. It was an attempt to, to really uh, deal death to as many people as possible in the most yeah. dramatic ways. And um, so I, I make no bones about it that I have trouble. And I had a lot of trouble for a long time and work with Palestinian groups to um, to survive. To, look, to You know, the biblical project is has great relevance to a people under... Uh, without their land and like in the age of of the um persian empire with ezra nehemiah and there's so much and many palestinian christians are drawing on that and i think it has uh relevance for palestinian muslims and non-religious people because it is about peoplehood and it is about uh, what cost 
mm-hmm. will resistance uh, be won? And the rabbis could said, we can still do this. We can still hold out. We can resist Rome. We can resist Babylon in the time of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah says, it comes at too high of a cost. Mm. If we play along, we can focus on other things and enrich the world through our gifts that do not have to uh, depend on state sovereignty mm. and autonomy. We can create space and time wherever we are. We can follow the Sabbath structure of seven days that when this creation, no one can take that away from us. No one can take our text away from us if we place them in our heart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to explain to the students the um, the you know the com- the command to pray you know bind bind the Torah the scrolls on your he- foreheads and your forearms and on your doorposts and and just and then but how central that that you know practice was with the phylacteries and uh, so yeah. uh, the students I teach don't often understand some of the practices of Judaism so I'm trying to explain uh, you know what all this means and it reminded me a little bit of a joke that. Um, my I, when I was in Israel, I was with a rabbinic student, and he I think he joked with his parents that uh, I baptized him in the middle of the night, um, <laughs> and and then he said, "But don't worry, I laid phylacteries on him while he was asleep. Uh, it'll be <laughs> fine." <laughs> and but anyway, um, yeah, yeah. But the, the importance uh, of that text, by the, the way, heart. what helps the students may uh, what may help the students is to think about these things as talisman, where. Mm. Others had placed um, certain kind of symbols in these positions. We're trying to establish that there is something greater than a some magical symbol in mm. its text with words yep. on them. It sounds very Protestant, <laughs> um, but in many ways, the rabbis are the proto-Protestants and the biblical authors before them in discovery. And this goes back to your point about what these scribes were. They were working with a technology that mm. was new, relatively new and not very common. And people knew there's a certain, just like you go to the pottery circles and the potter is going to make you, a, or what have you, the metalsmith, you can go to the scribe and the scribe will write a text for you, a contract, or some scribes work at the palace or the, pre, or the temple as priests, and they do different kinds of administrative things. And sometimes they actually write on these big stones and these monuments we can't read, mm-hmm. right? But now, during this age, we have scribes saying, our text are so wonderful to read. We enjoy them. We're these stories of that we're sharing with each other. They deserve a larger public, right? They deserve a larger readership. Mm-hmm. And um, and <clears throat> and that vision that it's that these texts could be at the center of society, not just relegated to our little scribal chambers. Not something that. One scribe reads, sends it to another town, and then you have to get the scribe to read it for you. Mm -hmm. But that everyone's going to be able to perhaps learn from text. And that's a great vision that perhaps doesn't take hold for a while. You can see Mm -hmm. it throughout the biblical narrative. It's formulated in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. But if you go along the narrative, you do not see David studying text. Mm-hmm. The only texts that David sends are dispatches to the front lines, right? And we have some of these dispatches from later times in the archaeological record, very dramatic ones from the from the final years of the Babylonian kingdom where he says, I can't see the fires anymore from Azekah. And from the book of Jeremiah, we know exactly where that happens. It's very uh, stunning. So we see dispatches. We see these texts going throughout um, 
in from the palace to the front lines to the temple, but texts being read by a larger community. And um, that's where Ezra and Nehemiah once again comes to the fore. That's where we see text. That's where they, after returning, after they've built their temple, they say, now, Ezra, bring your text. We want to hear mm-hmm. read. And you know what? It's the climactic moment of the whole book. Mm-hmm. It is not something peripheral. It's not like we do our things and we need text to help us regulate our society. No, the study of text, the hearing of them, the celebration of them is in itself something to be sought. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and move uh, maybe toward uh, your one of the things that you say in the conclusion, but also uh, you'd, you'd mentioned that you're interested in theology. Um, so I one of the questions that I sort of had was you have a kind of proposal in your conclusion and you talk about, you know, new potent, the potential for new Bibles. Oh, wow. um, and and so uh, very last page tantalizing uh, these new Bibles must stimulate reflection on what it means to be a, a people in inspire a sense of kinship, devotion to justice, and love for neighbor. And these are some of the themes that you've hit on uh, throughout our conversation. But just so you, you mentioned that you're interested in theology, but the one thing that seems to be missing from the new Bible is, uh, is a God, is a theology. Yeah. Or, I mean, well, we could think about theology in a broad sense. Like I tell my students that theology is is speaking well of God and living well for God. Uh, so, you know, we could think of theology as having the living, but there is also this understanding and speaking yeah. of God, uh, which definitely. seems to be absent there. Yeah, definitely. So um, very good question. So new Bibles is one part of your question. And then where is the place of theology or uh, God talk? and the worship of a God in these new Bibles. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> remember now that the book of Esther does not mention God. Mm-hmm. And it has this peoplehood on display, and they collaborate across great distances there in every province of the old empire. and But, they, but their texts are not even necessarily the Torah. Mm. They have a... So the whole book is kind of has a big God-sized hole in it. Mm-hmm. And there are other editions of the book that are later that insert mm-hmm. prayers and all kinds of stuff into it and make it very theological. But mm-hmm. that one is not the one in our Bibles, mm-hmm. most of our Bibles. Okay. So with regard to the theology part of it, the theology is very central to the biblical project. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm doing, I'm doing two things. New Bibles could be new Bibles for religious communities, mm. right? It doesn't have to replace the Bible, mm-hmm. but it could be like learning, just like we learn from ways the Bible um, models. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them is to step back and say the Bible itself is really quite interesting. And, and you know, communities have done this with the literary canon mm-hmm. of the West. You're right, but, right. But that has rightly been um, criticized because the concept is like, this is belongs to our canon, but you're not, you don't deserve to be our canon kind of thing. Um, but so there is kind of a, a, a bad taste that comes with these kinds of ideas of having a corpus of text that we all enter into and, um, and engage each other around important questions and so forth. Um, and it being a coherent corpus, right? Um, one could say we have Bibles in the sense of the, the larger culture of the film is dealing with American history, these documentaries, these songs and these paintings and these monuments. So there's a kind of but what the Bible does is bring all of that together into one framework. So it takes monuments and describes them on the text so that you have that portable homeland mm-hmm. like Heinrich 
uh, Heine described. And what would that look like for an American people, for a Korean people, right? On the one hand, can go, my big question is, can God be taken out of that? Mm-hmm. And where would be the point of unity? Where would be the point of authority? How do you instill love for your laws? Um, does narrative suffice or does the narrative need the theological aspect? So I set that aside. That's a that's the ongoing project of our democracies, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to create some kind of love for neighbor, some kind of sense of peoplehood. And it can't be on a theological basis because that would be inhospitable to those who or Jews who don't agree, or non non Christians, non Jews, atheists, what have you, Muslims, all of us coming together. On what basis? Mm-hmm. Now, for the theological aspect, that is central. There would be no concept of peoplehood without that covenant, mm-hmm. without Yahweh entering. That's what is at the heart of the Am Israel. They are the Am Yahweh. They mm-hmm. are the people of God too. And that gets picked up in the Christian people of God, and it's expanded and so forth. The theological is very central to the Christian project, and it's also very central to the Jewish project. Mm-hmm. The Christian project becomes spiritualized in a way that is not the Jewish project is not, the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible, because it's about peoplehood in the sense of also uh, ethnicities coming together, whereas the New Testament is transnational. Mm-hmm. And so the, the spiritual is the basis for that in a bigger way than within Judaism, that's in, in a way. But one can learn from all of these things in order to do new Bibles for our communities, right? You could have a new Bible for your uh, for the Presbyterian church in this town. We're going to like, what is our Bible for us in Louisville? Mm-hmm. What would it consist of? How do we create a corpus of text like the biblical authors did um, in bringing together various parts of a community and say we all belong in this text and we want to and we learn we're learning from the way the Bible does it mm-hmm. in order to do it in new ways that can be actually embracing others in our communities. It could be a religious once again, or it could be a political community. And another thing I do is I teach students on how to write the Bible. <laughs> and in that class, what we do is um this week, we're going to write a song. So to write a song, we have to learn how songs are written. Mm-hmm. By the way, AI, I have a Coursera uh, student who is doing AI, and he puts in, you know, it will come out with the the, the pointing, and you can read it, and it will formulate a psalm, and you tell it what voice and what themes, and it's amazing. Yeah, I, It's scary. But anyways, <laughs> we, before AI, yeah. we would do it that the students had to learn how to do this. The students had to learn how to write a prophecy. The students learned how needed to learn how to write narratives and poetry and all of that. And, and it can be offensive if it's understood as replacing, right? It's not replacing, it's honoring. It's Mm -hmm. like saying what they achieved through this is so powerful. The reason we have a Bible today, there's something has greater, we're, we're limiting its impact by making it just religious scripture for this community, but it is a model for all communities. I think. Mm-hmm. I'll go on the record saying that. <laughs> well, uh, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure to speak with Jacob Wright. Um, and as I said, the book is 500 pages. I mean, there's just so <sighs> much to digest. This conversation doesn't, you know, even begin to scratch the well, surface. Um, well, but questions, I, I um, are very perceptive and difficult ones and you really hit on things and uh, i'm impressed by your reading of it that's um i haven't been asked those questions yet before and i enjoyed addressing them 
Oh, well, great. Well, I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, encourage everyone to get a copy. It is a Cambridge book, but it's a lot cheaper than the average Cambridge yeah, yes. book. Uh, so it's sometimes lot. they're like a hundred and some odd dollars. I know. But, I know. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I got one published that was, um, I got a grant from uh, the Mellon Foundation for a book that was not was more academic and they published it open access. But this one, they're publishing, you know, around $30. Yeah. Um, and it's okay. Um, and it's like doing well. I would never have thought that it would be on the New Yorker's best of 2023, a book like on the Bible, book from Cambridge. Yeah. Um, and I also don't try to make it very, very, very accessible. Yeah. I'm actually speaking to your audience, uh, you know, people who um, I'm not breaking it down so that it's, it's, it's not 500 pages long because it's just saying one thing. It's 500 yeah. pages long because I really cover a lot of material. Sure do. Yeah, because, I mean, you pair the archaeological and the historical records independent of the scriptures and then, yeah, bring them into conversation. It was it was very illuminating. Um, I learned a lot. But, uh, yeah, well. Um, well, I uh, appreciate you asking me to come on and uh, or uh, agreeing for me to come on. I actually yeah. asked you. I had uh, heard a lot about your podcast and I enjoyed listening to the previous episodes. And I thought, well, we'll have a good conversation. And we have. So thank you. All right.